Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Here's the latest on the mass shooting at a Valley Transportation Authority light rail yard in San Jose on Wednesday that left 10 people dead, including the gunman. According to NBC Bay Area, the shooter, Samuel Cassidy, was reportedly facing a disciplinary hearing on the day of the massacre for allegedly making racist remarks to co-workers. And according to a Department of Homeland Security memo obtained by the Wall Street Journal, U.S. Customs Office had detained him after a trip to the Philippines in 2016 over a professed hatred of his workplace as he was reportedly in possession of books about terrorism and manifestos. Detectives collected three semi-automatic handguns from the scene of the shooting, and Santa Clara County Sheriff Lori Smith says they appear to be legal in California, although authorities are still trying to figure out if the weapons had been modified. The gunman also had a number of high-capacity magazines, which are prohibited in the state of California. Investigators have not yet determined if he set his own house on fire as they try to collect evidence there. And other details continue to surface about the gunman. According to his ex-girlfriend, he was prone to both physical and sexual violence. Experts who study violent behavior say there's a frequent link between people who commit domestic abuse and mass shootings, and that current laws might not be doing enough to break the cycle. I talked about these issues with Professor April Zioli, with Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice. The statistics depend on how you define a mass shooting. If you define a mass shooting as an event in which four or more people are shot, whether or not they die, then about 60% of mass shooters have a history of domestic violence. And if you define a mass shooting as a case in which four or more people are shot and die, then it's around, you know, 30 or so percent. If you add the number of people who shoot their intimate partners to death, then we're more around 40 or 50 percent. So it really is quite common for mass shooters to have these histories of uh, violence against their intimate partners. Those seem to be really, really substantial numbers. I mean, that is not some small fraction of people. That's a significant percentage in all of those cases. Correct. Yeah, it is a very large percentage. How well is law enforcement doing in terms of tracking someone's history like that? About 56% of um, intimate partner violence events are reported to the police in the first place. So you're losing almost half of cases. And from there, of the percentage that are reported, you know, only a fraction of those result in an arrest or charges. And an even smaller percentage of those result in a conviction. And a conviction for domestic violence is the way that the criminal justice system would be able to place people under firearm restrictions. 
Yeah. And, and talk more about those laws that are on the books, including here in California, to seize the firearms of people who've been involved with intimate partner violence. So the main law that people rely on to remove firearms from domestic violence perpetrators are laws that say that if you're under a current domestic violence restraining order, you can't purchase or possess a gun. When that law is accompanied by a relinquishment provision, so a provision that says now that you're restricted from having a gun, you have to give up the guns that you already have, then that is accompanied or that is associated with about a 12% decrease in intimate partner homicide. So it does look like these um, firearm restriction laws that are you know, specific to intimate partner violence offenders do decrease the risk of intimate partner homicide. And can anyone else take action beyond the person who's in the intimate relationship? Can a, a friend, a family member, a coworker, can they initiate this process in some way? In California, a gun violence restraining order can be petitioned for by close family members, by roommates, by employers or coworkers, um, and by employees or teachers of certain schools in addition to law enforcement. So if an employee or an employer is aware that someone is a threat, they can petition the California courts for a gun violence restraining order to have that person's gun rights temporarily suspended until they are again safe to have guns. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there, and just finally, is there anything that can be done to strengthen these kind of firearm seizure laws? Is there, is, are there other steps we can take that we're not taking, either state by state or nationally? What you need is better implementation. So, you know, more people need to know about these laws, need to use these laws. More people need to be comfortable with reporting, you know, these types of violence to the police or getting that uh, domestic violence restraining order. And that may take more work with the community and building community trust. All right. That is Professor April Zioli of Michigan State University School of Criminal Justice. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. More than a thousand people gathered in downtown San Jose last night to honor the nine victims of the mass shooting at the Valley Transportation Authority yard on Wednesday. Several family members of the victims shared memories of their loved ones. That included Aubrey Romo, the daughter of 49-year-old Timothy Romo, who is an overhead line worker. My dad was the smartest and funniest man I know. He was always the life of the party and all of my friends loved being around him. Almost every time I talked to my dad, he'd always say, who's my favorite little girl? And I'd always respond, I'm your only little girl. <laughs> he was the funniest man I ever known. <laughs> I'm gonna miss him every day. Many VTA employees attended the vigil and several wore white t-shirts with the faces of their fallen colleagues on them. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath 
or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's turn to the pandemic. How does this sound? Get vaccinated for COVID and possibly win a million and a half bucks. That's just part of Governor Gavin Newsom's new $116 million incentive plan to get more Californians vaccinated. KQED health correspondent April Naboski has more. The next 2 million people who get vaccinated in California will get a $50 gift card. They and everyone who's already been vaccinated will be automatically entered into three drawings for cash prizes. 30 people will each win $50,000, and 10 people will each win $1.5 million. Newsom says people 12 years old and up who received at least one dose are eligible. Be for your education and start a business. You can dream a little bit differently. You can help support your friends, family. If you do the right thing and set aside most of that money, maybe give it to charity, but that will be your decision. While critics called the move a bad use of public funds, Newsom cited UCLA research that found 31 percent of people across all races and economic status said the incentives made them more likely to get vaccinated. For The California Report, I'm April Domboski. In California, police misconduct records used to be kept hidden. But that changed in 2019 when the state implemented a new police transparency law. Lots of law enforcement agencies are still pushing back against this mandate. But a new investigative podcast from KQED and NPR is shedding light on some of these recently unsealed records and the people behind them. It's called On Our Watch. Here's an excerpt. When police are called and something goes wrong, like an officer uses excessive force or kills someone who's unarmed, departments can launch an internal affairs investigation to look into it. Here in California, those investigations were secret until now. We've sifted through interrogation tape and talked to witnesses to find out who does the system of police accountability really serve and who does it protect. That's the host of On Our Watch, Suki Lewis, who's here with me now to tell us more about the series. Suki, can you talk a little bit more about the history of these police misconduct records in California? California has had some of the strongest police protections in the entire country, you know, especially when it comes to confidentiality around officers' personnel files. And that really goes back to the power of the police unions to fight for these protections and keep them in place, even as we have seen, you know, over the past decade or so, a stronger and stronger movement calling for police transparency. And can you tell us a little bit more about this transparency law that opened up these records here in California? And what was it like for you as a criminal justice reporter to be able to access this information after it was sealed for so long? Well, this law, which went into effect January 1st, 2019, 
opened up three types of records, really um, serious use of force that resulted in great bodily injury or death, you know, shootings, and then the misconduct files. And those types of files are sexual misconduct by police officers and dishonesty by police officers. And so we were able to start to get a picture of not only, you know, specific cases that were interesting to us, but also how this system works, how an internal affairs investigation progresses. And so we began to really understand a lot more about how this system that has, you know, promised accountability to the public for so long, why it often fails to deliver it. Well, you reference accountability to the public. So can ordinary Californians go in or email and get access to these records? Yes, you can just be an ordinary civilian and write an email and say, under the public records law, please, you know, send me files uh, related to this. I will say that while the law made these public in name, we still have so many files that we have not gotten. So transparency really doesn't just happen. It needs to be enforced, you know, by the public. And has this information that's already been made public triggered noticeable shifts in police accountability? Have we seen things change? You know, some of our reporting has led to specific changes. You know, for instance, in the first episode of the podcast, you know, criminal charges are dropped after our reporting on police misconduct. But it's harder to trace, like, the effects of this law in the broader political debate. That's KQED criminal justice reporter and On Our Watch host Suki Lewis. You can hear more of episode one of the podcast On Our Watch later today on this week's The California Report magazine. You can also find On Our Watch wherever you get your podcasts. I heard it last night and it's pretty amazing. Please subscribe. And Suki Lewis, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And that is the California Report for Friday, May 28th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers are Katie McMurrin and Danny Bringer, with assistance from Seal Muller. Our producers are Mary Franklin Harvin and Keith Mizuguchi. Our senior editor is Angela Corral. Our director of news is Vinnie Tong. Our executive editor is Ethan Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great and safe Memorial Day weekend. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. 
Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.